Before we get started, if you like the content you're listening to, feel free to send me a donation to support your favorite podcast. There is a link in the description below. And if you're interested in a life reading or intuitive coaching session, all my contact information is also in each episode description. Now let's join the podcast already in progress. You're listening to the Metaphysical Mentor Podcast with Michael Philpott, providing you inspiration, information, knowledge, and motivation to help you on your soul's path. Covering topics related to health and happiness from the mystical to the metaphysical and everything in between. Making the unknown known. Now let's join the podcast to discover today's topic. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the Metaphysical Mentor Podcast with your host, me, Michael Philpott, and we're going to have a fantastic show today. You know, it's been, uh, I've been wanting to do uh, a topic on this for a while. When I decided to do this show, I wanted to cover all things kind of spirituality and stuff like that. And one of the things I wanted to include is also topics about religion, because I think a lot of people have this idea that you can have one without the other. And I really believe that, you know, religion does have its place in the spiritual world. So I'm really excited to have uh, Rabbi Rami Shapiro on the show today. Before we get started, uh, uh, Rabbi Shapiro, I just want to say a little shout out to all my friends and family that are listening across the world here. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and for tuning in. Uh, I got a little shout out to my uh, peeps in uh, Scotland there. Just want to say hello to you guys. I really appreciate you guys doing that. And also people who have been supporting this podcast. I really appreciate that too, as well with your donation. So again, this is fully funded by you, the listener. And I really, really, really appreciate that. So that being said, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Michael. How are you? I'm doing. Well, I know you have a little cold or something there, allergies. Yeah, I got a little bit of allergies thing. It's that time of year, you know, and it's been so, so hot, um, you know, and it's been a little crazy weather. So, uh, yeah, I sound a little congested, but uh, we'll, we'll get through it uh, uh, nonetheless. But I really appreciate you being on the show because I've always wanted to talk about Judaism. I've had a, a Buddhist monk on and we talked about Buddhism and really, really opened my eyes to understand what Buddhism is all about. But I never had a chance to actually sit down and talk to a rabbi. And I was like so excited. I was like, oh, my gosh, I have a bajillion questions I want to ask. As somebody who's been raised Christian, I mean, we really don't have I mean, we have a little bit of knowledge about uh, Judaism just through, you know, Jesus and a few other things. But we didn't have a lot of information. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. And congratulations on your book, by the way. Thank you. So what number is this? What, how many books is this now? 36. <laughs> that many. Wow. I knew there was a lot, but I didn't realize there was that many. 36 books. 36. Wow. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was about how did you get started uh, becoming a rabbi? Yeah, being a rabbi was not on my agenda. My intention was to become a PhD professor in Buddhist studies. Uh, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. By the time I was 13, it was clear to me that the Judaism I was being taught was something I was growing out of and never into. And I was looking for something else. I was in high school and I was very lucky. Two of my favorite high school teachers, uh, Peter Santos and uh, Michael Gelinas, just to honor their names, uh, they were invited to India for a summer intensive in what they called Asian civilization. And they came back and they started teaching classes in Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. And I loved them. So I started taking their classes and I fell in love with the subject. And at that time, Buddhism really grabbed my attention. Uh, I went, uh, I found a, a Zen master that I could work with. I ended up uh, with a bachelor's in philosophy with a concentration in, in Zen Buddhism. And my intent was to go to graduate school in Buddhist studies. And I was on a retreat with my Zen master, Joshu Sasaki Roshi. And he had heard from my teacher in the university that my plan was to go for a PhD. And he took me aside and he said, you know, you can't, don't do that. The, the doctoral program will ruin your love of Buddhism. Instead, he said, move to the monastery, learn Japanese and become a Zen monk. And as soon as that came out of his mouth, what came out of mine was 
Roshi, I can't do that. I'm going to become a rabbi. Now, that was news to both of us. And he laughed and he said, he's Japanese, and he said something, sounded something like this. He goes, I'll be a rabbi, be Zen rabbi. I said, okay, I'll be a Zen rabbi. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but maybe that's what I am. But uh, from, then I, from there, I did go to graduate school. I was already accepted in Buddhist studies. I lasted about a week. He was absolutely correct. What they were interested in was the history of Buddhism and, and real minutia from, from an academic perspective. I was interested in enlightenment. I'm no longer interested in enlightenment. Back then, I thought it was something I should be interested in. And I, I went to the department head and I changed majors. And at that time, the only major that was open was Judaic studies. So I thought, okay, so I'll just switch. And since I said I was going to become a rabbi, maybe this is a good idea. And then it just went on from there where I got, you know, all my subsequent degrees are in, are in Judaic studies. But uh, that was not my intent. Was, if not for Roshi, I don't know what would have happened, but I, I may not have gone into the rabbinate. Wow. I just love those backstories. Um, you know, it's so interesting. You know, some people just have like just something that just sparks their curiosity at a young age that really drives them. And there's that love, there's internal know knowingness, I guess, that they know that just there's something that grabs them and they get so excited about it and they want to follow that. But I must say, you must have a lot of blowback, you know, from your family, probably, you know, big on what are you studying Buddhism for? Oh, yeah. My, my father used to say to his friends, you know, my son is a Zen. He called it a Zen. He didn't know what it was, but it was a Zen. But he wasn't any happier when I switched to Judaic studies and went to rabbinical school because you know, we were orthodox and I chose the reform movement to pursue ordination. And he had, had, I mean, I had no experience in the reform movement. He only knew the biased things that orthodox back then in the you know, mid-century, mid 20th century, maybe thought about reform. And when I told him what I was gonna do, he was very upset and he said something like, you can't do that. That's a church. And I said, no, it's a different way of doing Judaism. But he never, never really got got into that. Yeah. So what'd your mom think about that, too, as well? I oh, know my she... mom thought I couldn't do any wrong. Doesn't my, you know, I could have I could have been anything or nothing. My mother would have been happy. Oh, that was fantastic. So just for just for clarification. So what's the difference between the Orthodox and reform? So it, it's you can just you can describe it in different ways, but one way to describe it is where is the authority? Who has the authority? Okay. And in orthodoxy, the authority lies with uh, ancient text and long dead rabbis interpreted through the insights of other rabbis and contemporary rabbis, all within the orthodox framework. But you're always looking, when you're trying to decide what's Jewish and how do I do X, Y, or Z Jewishly, you go back to these foundational texts. Okay. Reform is not opposed to having you examine the foundational text. And we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about the Talmud. Um, it's not opposed to any of that. But reform says the individual is the ultimate authority, that you, you decide how you want to do your Jewish, your Jewish life, how do you want to live Jewishly. And they hope, and rabbis, reform rabbis encourage people to become as knowledgeable as possible. Whereas in, in orthodoxy, not that they were opposed to becoming you know, literary Jews, but you really didn't have to be knowledgeable because the rabbis told you what to do. Um, so it wasn't, it was, wasn't, didn't really, be, nothing rested on your shoulders. I mean, they told you what to do and you did it. Whereas in reform, you don't know what to do unless you, you know, study it yourself and decide for yourself what, you know, what kind of Shabbat are you going to do? What kind of uh, kosher are you going to keep? You know, when I was growing up, kosher was, I was told what it was and I just did it. But uh, later I said, no, this, the way we're doing it doesn't really speak to the, what I thought were the ultimate values of kashrut, of kosher. And came to the decision that being a vegetarian was a much more um, was much more closely aligned with the ideals of kosher than, you know, being a meat eater, even if you're only eating so-called kosher meat. 
Now, did any of that influence come from the from Buddhism or Hinduism at all, too, as well, or not that? What what influenced me, what drew me to Buddhism, and then ultimately to I mean, I'm I'm drawn to all of them. I mean, you can if you can see if you're watching yeah. this on YouTube, you know, I've got I've got icons and symbols of of major religions on behind me. Some you can see, some are you know blocked by my body, but. Um, what really drew me to these other traditions was the, and I'm going to use the word theology, though Buddhists wouldn't use that term, was their notion of the absolute. In Judaism, in mainstream Judaism, not Jewish mysticism, but I didn't know it at the time, but in mainstream Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, God is other. You know, God is the self-conscious creator of the universe who lives outside the universe, uh, and who, you know, judges you, decides on your fate, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, I never, by the time I was in my mid-teens, that just didn't, I didn't get that at all. I couldn't understand this dualistic notion of God. Hindus and Buddhists don't have it. Now, they don't have it in their own unique ways. But I was drawn, I mean, my favorite metaphor from the Hindu tradition is that of the ocean and the wave. Think of God as an infinite ocean with an infinite number of waves. So God is the ocean and you and I are the waves. Every form in the universe is a wave of the divine ocean. And the wave is never other than the ocean. No wave is all of the ocean, but the ocean is all of every wave. That just spoke to me as a, as a late teen. And I've never, I've experienced that through meditation, through different practices, but I've never lost it. It just seems uh, obvious to me that that's the truth. Now, what I did find, if you go into the mystical traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you find the same thing. They'll all say that because it is the truth. But I wasn't raised in the Kabbalistic tradition or the mystical tradition or the Hasidic tradition. I was raised in mainstream modern orthodoxy. And for them, there was, you know, God was up here and you were down here and you did what God told you to do as a Jew. Um, this other way of viewing things makes much more sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until later in life that, you know, because I was raised Roman Catholic. So it's that same ideas of, you know, God's here. You know, that's why you go to church. And uh, that's how you connect with uh, anything else that's it's not connecting to God. So you always had to be in church and all that stuff. So again, a lot of times I, I didn't understand that. But it wasn't until later in life, like late 30s, 40s, when I really started to really, you know, try to understand a different uh, notion of what God was. And from that perspective on how you talked about it, it reminds me of what the scientists are talking about now, about the waves yeah. and this infinite waves. And it's just, I mean... This sounded like quantum physics. I was like, that really sounds like quantum physics a bit, you know, how they're trying to describe what God is. So do you have, would you be able to define what is God right now through all your different experiences? How would you define God? I mean, to me, God is reality. God is the happening that's happening is all happening. I mean, in, in the Bible, uh, in, in uh, the book of Exodus, in chapter three, where in the story, and I think the Bible is story, not history, but in the story where uh, Moses meets God at the burning bush, and then Moses says, what's your name? And then what God, God gives two names. The first name God gives is Ehia, um, E-H-Y-E-H -E in English. And it means it's the first person singular of the verb to be. So it's not I, or even I am, which is static, and there, there's no word in English, so it's eyeing. I am the perpetual eyeing of the universe. I am the eternal subject of, of the universe. Uh, and then the next name that God gives is the unpronounceable uh, yod heh vav -Hey or Y-H-V-H. It's the same verb, but in third person. And the, what the mystics will say is, when you're looking out at the world, you're seeing the yod heh vav -Hey, God happening seemingly as other. But in mystic moments of mystic awareness, uh, you become what you really are, which is the I am. Uh, you know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, most mainstream Christians will think he's talking about himself, I, Jesus, 
am mm -hmm. the way, the truth, and the life. But from a Jewish perspective, and Jesus is a Jew, and he's speaking, I, I would argue, he's speaking from a Jewish mystical perspective. What he's saying is the ehiyad, the eyeing of the universe, is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody gets to the, the ultimate except through that level of consciousness. So that, I don't know if that answers your question clearly, but that it, to me is what, is what God is. It's yeah, I, I, I love that itself. definition. I really love that definition. And it's interesting when you talk about that translation and it gets so lost. And that's one of the things that, you know, it always drives me crazy about religion. So that's just the lost in translation and what we try to make it seem. And I really appreciate that version of it versus the Christian. I mean, that's the thing. It's always, it's, this is how it's, I am. It's always about the, me and it always sounds about the ego and versus the 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 entirety the wholeness of it or the holistic approach right. uh, and which is only of, which is only true in mainstream thinking right i mean you go to catholic mystics you won't find that you'll find what i just said but they'll they'll do it in greek or latin yeah. terminology um you go to russian orthodoxy or or greek orthodoxy and again not i mean right now russian orthodoxy is caught up in a in a nationalist ethno-nationalist russian fascism uh, that doesn't really do the religion justice. But if you look at the mystics in Orthodox Christianity, they'll tell you the same thing. And you'll find it in, <laughs> in the Protestant movement also. Mystics are mystics. The language they use will be formed by the religion out of which they come. But the message they convey, I think, is always the same. Always the same. So what would that message be? Now, given, you know, I mean, there's probably a lot of parallels to, you know, versus the Christian mysticism, Judaic mysticism, you know, all the different sides. There's got to be some type of parallel or something like that. So what would you, what would you assume? Or maybe if, if I you... were going to put it in one phrase, I, I love the Sanskrit phrase, tatvam asi, thou art that. You are the divine. And when you realize that, then you can, and of course, you realize that not in the egoic sense, but in the sense that you are the divine and I am the divine and the trees are divine and everything you love is divine and everything you hate is divine. God is the whole, you know, a, a wild process of reality. When you realize that, there's an ethic that arises at the same time. When I know that you and I are equal manifestations of the singular reality, I can only... Um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. I can only deal with you uh, with with love. Not and, and just to clarify, the the Bible doesn't say this is Leviticus nineteen eighteen. The Bible doesn't say love your neighbor as you love yourself. When I was teaching Bible at the university level, my students would always misread it or misremember it, and they would say, "Well, I have to love myself first before I can love anyone else." I mean, that's that's Oprah. That's, that's not the Bible. I mean, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, because you and I, Michael, are the same big capital S self. Yeah. You know, and you know, taking the self to be the absolute, that capital S self. So it's, it's love your neighbor. Bible then says, love the stranger. Jesus then says, love your enemy as yourself, because the self is all there is. Understanding self to be another word for the yeah. infinite reality wow that's that's so way you know i really love how you put that too you know um as as somebody you know you, you kind of get indoctrinated to the the oprah language and a lot of stuff i mean she's done a lot of good i mean i'm not gonna no knock. offense to oprah no <laughs> yeah offense. i mean she's done quite well and she's really opened up helped a lot of people you know on that but i really love that idea um that because as you know somebody has that same mentality because when i listened to you i was like yeah i've done that i that's what i thought you know because it's like love my, I had to love myself first before I can love my neighbor. And, you know, it, you know, my neighbor's not the best person in the world. So how the hell am I going to love that guy? You know, right. and those right. ideas. Wow. And, you know, in the Jewish tradition, there's centuries of debate about what does it mean to love that person? You know, is, are we talking about the way I love my spouse or my kids or my grandkids or my dog? Or, you know, are we talking about that? Or are we talking about, um, you know, the, the way I love ice cream or, you know, the, love is such a vague term in English. Uh, but they usually come down, the rabbis say it's really dignity and respect that you treat one another with dignity and respect because you are uh, in the presence of the divine 
you know, I mean, it's you and I, it's, it's God talking to God through the medium of God, <laughs> you know, because it's all, it's all that same thing. Yeah. Um, I yeah. like that. I like that idea. It's just that we're just filtering it through our meat suits that we wear, you know, on a but daily the, basis. As long as we understand that the meat suit also is God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because then we, otherwise we got God and we got meat suits. So here it's, it's all <laughs> one thing. The wave is not other than the ocean. It's just not all of the ocean. It's just not all the ocean. Wow. So what are the, one of the things that you take into your practice? Now, are you still, I mean, I know you teach and stuff like that. Do you take a lot of the philosophies of Hindu and Buddhism and then you intertwine them with your Judaic principles and stuff like that and teach that as a new way of looking at Judaism? When I'm teaching Judaism, I don't do that at all. No. When I'm, no. When I'm teaching Judaism, I'll teach the exact same ideas, but I'll only use... Jewish text. Okay. Now, if there are Christians in the room, I mean, which is common, then I will expand that and say, you know, if, if you're a Christian, you might hear the same thing when Jesus says, and then I would quote that. Um, if I'm, when I go to India and I'm talking to Hindus, uh, I will bring in Hindu material to help them understand what I'm saying about Judaism. And the same thing with, with Buddhism or other settings. But if I'm teaching Judaism to Jews, I don't do that. I focus exclusively on the Jewish mystical side of things yeah. uh, because I want them to understand that what I'm saying isn't Buddhism or Hinduism. It's truth, you know, and here's the Jewish way of saying it. Because uh, I've had people come up to me and say, well, you're really just teaching Buddhism and pretending it's Judaism. So I'm very careful not to do that. My comeback is that, I mean, truth is truth. And the mystics of these different traditions are speaking truth. They're experiencing the same reality. And so they're going to be talking about the same thing using their own language. And if Judaism didn't have that capacity, then Judaism would, would be so limited and so limiting and, and so shallow but it does and it has since the beginning wow so with the, the jewish mysticism and, and the understanding of that is that something that's totally separate that's been has to be taught differently or has been has been researched so it's not is it part of the orthodoxy or the reform part uh, that you're learning where does that fit into judaism there jewish mysticism is <laughs> this is a little iffy way to put it, but Jewish mysticism is like the PhD level of Jewish studies. Okay. So if you're looking for your basics, you go for, you know, a BA. If you're going to get a little bit more involved, you get a master's degree. But if you really want to go into the deep spiritual depths of Judaism, you go into the mystical tradition. And so you might call that the PhD level. It's all rooted in the same texts. So it's okay. just the way you read you read the text. I'll give you a concrete example. Yeah, please. So there's there's a, uh, of course, now I'm going to go blank. Uh, it's, it's in Deuteronomy. Is it chapter 34, verse 5? Maybe I'd have to look it up. But the text in Hebrew is Ein Od Milvado. So Ein Od Milvado literally means there's nothing beside him, him. And in the context of the Bible story, it's clear they're talking about the Jewish God and there's no other God but that. It's like when, when a Muslim will say, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but Allah. So it's the same idea. There's no God beside the Jewish God. The mystical reading of exactly the same text reads it very differently. There they'll say, there is nothing other than God. And that's very different than saying there's no other God next to God. Yeah. They'll just say there's nothing other than God. And that's, that's a, a bigger leap of understanding to make. So like, it, if I, if I, yeah, it, it almost sounds as it sounds more inclusive, you know, the, well, mystics, I think, yeah, mysticism is very inclusive. Um, that's why it's, you don't find mystic terrorists, you know, <laughs> they hang out together and they don't, they don't end up fighting each other. They can have deep discussions about language. Mm -hmm. um, I've been in those settings, but um, 
you know, they don't go to war with one another because they realize that in a sense, there is no one and other. There's just God happening in all these various forms. So uh, it, it is a very, a very different way of approaching your religion. Yeah. Is that why you wrote your, your last book here about tribalism? And was that kind of the idea behind it? I don't know what the idea is behind the books I write. <laughs> they, they just sort of get... They you just know, flow I, out of you? They, my fingers type, and the next thing I know, I have a manuscript, and then hopefully somebody you know, publishes it. The, the point of the core idea behind um, Judaism Without Tribalism, which is the newest book, is Jews are a tribe. Jews, Judaism is a tribal religion. And there's nothing wrong with tribe. Catholics are a tribe, you know, Shivite, Hindus are a tribe, and using the word tribe in that way. So Jews are a tribe. That means that uh, they have a unique language. In Judaism's case, they have multiple languages, multiple cuisines, multiple music styles, but it's all part of the same tribe. And they share a common literature, though different aspects of the tribe will have some books that others don't necessarily uh, study. But still, it's, it's multilingual, multiracial, multiethnic uh, tribe. I'm, I love being a Jew. I have no problem being part of a tribal tradition. My problem comes with tribalism. Tribalism is when you take the uniqueness of your tribe and suddenly it's, the, it's just the only true tribe or the, it's the best tribe. Or, you know, so, so for example, the notion that uh, God chose the Jews from among all the peoples of the earth. That's tribalism. That's tribalism. It's, that's tribalism. That's at the extreme end of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tribalistic statement. I mean, statement. Now, most Jews will, will affirm it. And in our prayer books, we say it regularly. But if you think about it, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, you, you know, if you, if you have an idea of God, who's, if you have a tribalist idea of God, then the God picks the, uh, you know, specific people, gives them something the other people don't have. I mean, you know, it, it, it gets very silly in my, in my mind. Yeah. But the fact that God manifests in infinite diversity and that leads to multiple tribes in the world and, and multiple ethnicities and all, you know, all of that, I think that's a wonderful thing. I don't have a problem with that, but it gets out of hand. So my concern and that's why I wrote the book, I guess, is that Judaism was losing its universalist message in the revival of, of what I would call tribalism. So just, you know, today is July 20th, and we're having this conversation. Um, weeks ago, not too many weeks ago, but weeks ago, earlier in the month, there was, uh, you know, at the Western Wall, which is the outer retaining wall of the, of, of the temple in Jerusalem. There's a part which is for men and a part that's for women. And then there's a part that's for the, an egalitarian coming together. And it's supposed to allow, the egalitarian one is supposed to allow for uh, more liberal Jews to go to the wall with their families, with their spouses. And uh, weeks ago, there was two bar mitzvah ceremonies going on and one bat mitzvah ceremony going on and the there was an invasion by an extreme orthodox group you know it's men and okay. mostly young men uh who attacked uh, went to the egalitarian side of the wall and attacked the people there wow. and tried to disrupt their worship and tore their prayer books you know something that violates every it, it violates the core teachings of judaism and they were doing it because they believe their god which is a tribalistic god chose them as the only true jews and yep. said jews men and women males and females cannot pray together wow. and so this is an abomination and so they went out and they did this horrible thing that's tribalism you know it, um, it you know it, it looks like that it, it sounds like there's so many i mean tribalism's happening Everywhere, everywhere now yeah. like every has got to turn on the news it's us against them it's my philosophies my my ideology is better than your ideology you see it in the political system and how these different things are happening and i just realized that 
tribalism's everywhere. And it's uh, like, there is, like you said, there's the extreme, like being, they always talk about being part of a tribe, like, Hey, um, find your tribe and all that stuff. But then you look at the extreme, you know, ex- extremism of tribalism and how dangerous it is because the, I mean, the fact that everybody's trying to worship at this place, all trying to, you know, have the same thing. And then you have one group saying, well, no, you guys can't do this. That's not, a, you know, that's not possible. Yeah. And yeah. To, to have that sort of violence happen, is just, yeah. I, it's mind blowing. It's it's heartbreaking, and you know people gravitate toward tribes. I mean, I belong to lots of tribes. I belong to the Apple Computer Tribe. I would never, ever, ever, you know, have a PC or a Samsung <laughs> phone. I mean, it just goes against my my tribal loyalties. But I would never say to uh, my my grandsons, you know, you can't marry anyone who uses a PC. I mean, because that's we're we're Apple, and those people, you know, if you have those are Dell people. Those Dell people are evil. They're wicked. They must be destroyed. We have, to, you know, I mean, that it becomes absurd when you put it when you take it out of a religious or political or ethnic context. Yeah, but it's the same mentality. It's just that you can laugh at it when you're talking about computers or, yeah, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a diet Coke guy, and maybe you're a diet Pepsi guy, or and, yeah. and so now we're at war. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 there's, it's just absurd. Yeah. Like and, you think about your favorite sports team or your favorite car. You know, I grew up in a small farming community. It was like Chevy or Ford. And if you're a Chevy guy, you, you know, this is who you were. And then same thing, you know, you know, who's your favorite sports team? Oh, geez. You're, you're a Leaf fan. Oh, you're a Canadian fan. Oh, you can't have that. Like it, it's, it's crazy. The, how tribal we get that mentality. So what, what would you say really causes that deep division within tribalism why does people get so amped up about me versus them why is my life my life better than your life yeah not that i know the ultimate answer to that question but i would say that people are looking for identity and and a place to belong and they need one that's narrow enough to feed their egoic hunger for for this identity the true identity is divinity. I mean, you are the eyeing of the universe, but you can't build a tribe around that. And most people aren't comfortable without a label. And so, and then, and then, so, so, okay, so I have the label of Jew, but maybe that's not enough. I got to have the label of reform, Orthodox, conservative, reconstructionist, humanist, uh, reform, you know, I, I said reformer. So, you know, you have to have a smaller and a narrower label. And then maybe even within that label, you're a certain kind of Orthodox Jew. Uh, people are just sadly desperate for some kind of label that gives them a sense of identity. But all of that, from the mystical perspective, all of that falls away. I mean, there. while you can talk about Jewish mystics and Catholic mystics, the experience that these people are having isn't Jewish Catholic Muslim or anything else. In in 1984, I mean, I don't I don't know if you're still involved in Catholicism at all. Oh no, very much. Not. Well, okay, so you say it like, oh no, of course not. But there is some brilliant stuff going on in in the Catholic world, not necessarily from the Vatican, but there are some really amazing stuff happening uh, in the mystical end of Catholicism. And in 1984, Father Thomas Keating, who was my my priest, you know, that's why I would have, he was my Catholic mentor. Uh, in 84, he created, well, Father Thomas is along with his friend, uh, Father Basil uh, Pennington, created the centering prayer movement, where they took the practices of the Benedictines and, and made them more accessible to lay people. And uh, Father Thomas was very deeply personally involved in mystical practice from a Catholic perspective, but he wanted to, he started this experiment. He was living at the monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. So he called it the Snowmass group. And what he did was he brought together 12 contemplatives from 12 different traditions to live together for a week. I, if I, this is how I remember it. And we meditated and we talked, you know, every day, all day for, for the week. We followed the hours of the, the monks. But when they went off to do their work at the monastery, we 
continued our, our practices and our discussions. And the, he had only one rule for the gathering and it, and it went on for 35 years every year. I didn't go every year, but it went on for 35 years. The, the one rule he had, at least in the beginning, was when we're having a conversation, you cannot reference your tradition. You can't say, oh, we Catholics believe X, Y, and Z, or we Jews believe something else. He says, we're not, I, I can look that up in a book. I'm not interested. He says, what I want to talk, the way I want to have this conversation is that talk about your experience. Now, as you talk about your experience, the language you're going to use is going to come from your tradition, and there's nothing wrong with that. But don't tell me what Catholics believe. Tell me what you, who happen to be doing a Catholic mystical practice, what are you experiencing? What's happening to you? What's the result? And what became clear, at least to me, and I think to everybody, but at least to me, by the end of the first day, was that we were all having the same experience. And I want to put experience in quotes because an experience requires someone to be separate and having the experience, but the actual language is just no good here, but the actual experience, there is no self there. So there's really no experience. There's just what you reconstruct when the experience passes and you come back to your normal waking state uh, consciousness. But anyway, as people were talking about what was happening, they were all having, they were all saying the same thing, using different vocabularies, but saying the same thing. And what they were saying was that as I did my meditation, everything that defined me as me fell away. And in the end, there was nothing. Wow. The eternal void. Yeah, right. Uh, which, you know, is, is at the same time, everything. So it's just everything without labels. So pure awareness, that kind of thing. Uh, the Hindus call it sat, chit, ananda, pure being, pure consciousness, pure peace or pure bliss. Um, and everyone was having the same thing. And when they came back from that experience, they all, they all, because now there was a self to have an experience, they were all saying, I feel uh, so connected to the universe. I feel love for my neighbor as part of this greater self, right? I feel love from everything, for everything. And that's what mystics, that's what mysticism promises, I guess you could say. But that's what mystics experience. But they don't experience it as Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians. They experience it as what we really are, which is just mind, pure consciousness. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds amazing. You know, it sounds a lot of a parallel. So kind of people I have conversations with who've, uh, who've done like an ayahuasca ceremony or stuff like that, where, you know, they just, the whole self just dissipates and, uh, and also, um, I follow Dr. Joe Dispenza. I don't know if you ever follow his work and he talks about becoming the mystical and how self-healing and going into that void, whereas that sense of knowingness and, and something that you always known or always been, and it's so familiar or the unfamiliar is familiar. If I get that quote, correct. Yeah. But it's just something that everybody can relate to again. And it's really interesting when they talk about how you said, like, you know, you're, you're trying to not use that language that you were you're using like because i'm a catholic or i'm a muslim you're just using your experience but how would I, my idea is like how would they try to formulate that after kind of going into that void in that consciousness it's just how would they best describe or feel that like i mean to have that level of awareness like i talked to uh, a doctor um uh, and she was on my show and we talked about she had a pure consciousness e event that shaped her life forever it was very instant but she she had took it took 20 years to, for her to figure out how to explain it. And that's why she went into psychology uh, just to understand what this whole event was. And, and still to this day, I mean, she has a, a good grasp of it, but she still has a hard time trying to describe that type yeah. of feeling. Yeah. I think the people that I know who, you know, who I would say are, are the, the mystics that we're talking about, they, they all come back and they say, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I'm not even going to try to explain it. Um, you can see how it affects my behavior, but I don't, I don't know what it is. And to conceptualize it is to miss it altogether because it's not a thing, right? So, so it's, it's, you know, I, I know where, where the doctor's coming from because you have these experiences and they're, they're so powerful and you want to articulate them and maybe share them with other people. 
but ultimately, I mean, and, and you do the best you can, but ultimately you have to say language doesn't cut it. And, and I'm giving you just an approximation and not the actual experience. Is it more of a feeling that it's able to even describe a feeling versus, I know even that's a language, but I mean, yeah. it's more of a language of the body, like, you know, the feeling of what you're connected to. Well, there, there is, when, this is my experience, when, when, the, when I come back into my normal waking state consciousness and my, my body, which ends here, but in the meditation doesn't end anywhere, um, when, when I'm in that state, then yeah, you could say there's a, there's a certain feeling. It's a feeling of compassion. There's a certain uh, intellectual knowing that I didn't have before, that I am not who I think I am, uh, that I am, you know, I'm a wave of this divine ocean. And when I can go beyond or look beyond or look through, whatever you want to say, the wave form, all I have is the ocean, which is what, which is really all there is. So you can, you can conceptualize these things, you can call it, you can make thoughts about it, you can have feelings about it, but ultimately the event itself, and maybe that's what we should call it as a happening or an event, the event itself is, has none of that. Have you had many experiences like that? Oh, every day, no, yeah, I've had several. <laughs> I've had several, I don't wanna you know, overstate the case, but, but I've had several, yeah. Yeah. Whereas it basically like during your meditations and um, you've had that, is there a certain meditation that you were following that helped you with the, uh, had this uh, kind of a pure consciousness experience? So my sense of practice, meditation, practice, all of that. Um, Father Thomas Keating used to say that you cannot practice your way to salvation or enlightenment or awareness or anything because it's not, it's not something you control, that your practice can prime the pump so that by the grace of the universe, something might happen. You might be part of some event, but you can't make it happen through your meditation. So I have done serious work in a number of meditative systems, but the gift of this awakening doesn't happen because of the system. My, my last experience with this one that's profound enough to remember anyway. Uh, I, I went, I have a teacher in, uh, in California. He's an Indian guy though. He, he's not a Swami. He doesn't teach in an ashram. He has no students. I call him my teacher because he teaches me, but it, it's just an informal thing. Uh, he is a disciple of the Ramana Maharshi end of uh, non-dual Vedanta Hinduism. And Ramana Maharshi used to teach a practice where when you notice your thinking, you notice your feeling, you investigate, you say, who, who is having this thought? Who's having this feeling? And you realize there's an observer behind the thought, behind the feeling that isn't having the feeling. It's just aware of the feeling. And, 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 and in and of itself has no thought, no feeling, no labels, no nothing. So anyway, I'm sitting in his living room and we're just chatting. And out of the blue, he says, so what's your spiritual practice? Now I've known this guy for years and he taught me this self-inquiry practice. And I said, well, you know what it is. You know, I, I asked this question, you know, who am I? And then he said, are you? And that was it. I was gone. It's wow. like the Rami switch was turned off. I was, and this and it was different than other events that have happened to me, but I was aware of him, uh, but I didn't know who he was. I was aware of the furniture in the room. I was aware of, it wasn't that everything was blank. It was the opposite. Everything was crystal clear, but completely without concept. I didn't know what any of these things were. And it wasn't frightening. It was just like, I, I don't know, just some observer mind or something. I really don't know how to express, express it. But from my end, I can tell you in retrospect, I could see everything, but I saw it without any labels, language. Yeah, it's almost all. like your identity or how you construct yeah, things I had, in your mind. I had no identity. Right. I had wow. that, there was no Rami there at all. 
but it wasn't blank because I've had those blank experiences. This was, I was, I could see everything except myself. Uh, and then it ended. And I said to him, what did you do? What was that? Assuming he knew what was happening. Oh, I'm sure he, he said, did. Well, you know, I made the same assumption. Yeah. And his comeback was, let's go to lunch. And we went to lunch and we never talked about it again. So, we're, we're, and there's a teaching in that. In other words, I wanted to conceptualize what is not conceptualizable. Yeah. So, so I've had these kinds of experiences. And I mean, they're, I don't know, I don't want to dismiss them. I mean, they're, they're fun to have had, but it's not like I live for them. Uh, but they have all taught me the, the veracity of this notion that we are all manifesting of the same reality, whether you call it the ocean or uh, God or whatever it is, that we're all, there isn't anything else. There's nothing else but that. Yeah. I think as humans, we're always looking for that practical application sometimes from an experience and how to conceptualize it. We always we're very good at that. We're trying to figure it out. You know, try, yeah. always trying to figure it out instead of just kind of just being there and just in being present, I guess, with the I am, I guess, if you were called that, but just allow yourself to be present and just experience it just for the experience without trying to, okay, okay, what did I do? What was going on? What was this meeting? We're always trying to make meaning out of stuff. Yeah. When I, when I first started studying Zen, I had a different kind of experience where everything was gone. Uh, and then when it passed, I felt this incredible love for and from the universe. And then I wanted to know how I did it. How can I get it again? Uh, what, you know, what I, I want to replicate it. I want to have it over and over and over again, which is absurd. It yeah. just doesn't work that way. Yeah. But, we, uh, we'd like to try it because it probably, I mean, from that state of being, I mean, it felt so good to be so interconnected. And I think a lot of people... It's almost like chasing a high in some ways. You're chasing that it, kind it of spirit, that spiritual high. And how can yeah. I live it? Yeah. Like, like how profound, like did any, do you feel like after those experiences, did you feel any different long-term? Let's say, you know, you had the experience, it's momentary. It, it felt like maybe, you know, could be a couple hours, but then all of a sudden- It could it, be just seconds. You don't, yeah. I mean, I, you don't even know. But yeah. yeah anyway. And then you kind of back to reality and then it's like, okay, I had that experience. I was pretty wild. All right. So what do I do now? Like, did it actually, did you still, did the after effects still, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, did it still continue on after the experience throughout your daily yeah, life? Yeah. In, in Judaism, there's a term called Rishimu, R-I-S-H-I-M-U, I guess, in English letters. It literally means residue, but it's used by one of the great mystics in the 19th century, Rev Nachman of uh, Braslav, and, and he tried to answer your question this way. He said, imagine you go to a store and you buy a vial of very expensive perfume. And then you take the stopper out and you put it on a tabletop and you just leave it there. Eventually the perfume will evaporate. There's nothing in the, in the jar anymore. But the, the fragrance, this is what he called Rishimu. He said, the fragrance fills the room and permeates the bottle, even though the perfume itself is gone. So what's the, what's the fragrance that's left from these experiences? So it's, it's an easy thing to answer, but then I'm, I'm gonna, it makes it too simple. The, the easy answer is you become more compassionate, more kind, more just, and less obsessed with yourself because you realize the self is just a construct. Uh, the reason I hesitate is that I know people who have had this kind of experience and they just come back completely uh, focused on themselves. They want to be a great guru. They want to go out and get lots of followers and make lots of money and, you know, do all kinds of things that, that ultimately are, are hurtful to other people. And yet they say their experience is, is authentic. I don't want to claim I don't know what their experience was, so I'm not going to say it was inauthentic, but they didn't integrate it in such a way as to make their everyday life more kind than, uh, than you'd like it to be anyway. You know, they just, they just took it as, hey, I had this experience, now let me make money on it. Let me use it for, for power 
yeah, uh, purposes. Control. So you can do that. I mean, there was um, one of the books that I read in, I think it was maybe in, in college, was Zen and the Art of Archery by a guy named, I think it's Eugene Harrigal. And Harrigal is this German guy and it's a, it's a memoir. And he goes from Germany, he goes to Japan and he studies Zen archery. And the implication by the end, it's a very small, well-written book. The implication is, is that through the practice of Zen archery, he had an enlightenment experience. And that's how the book ends. If that's all you know about him, you go, wow, maybe I should try Zen archery. But when you do a little bit more research, he left Japan, went back to Germany and became a Nazi. So how do you have uh, an enlightened Nazi? It, it makes no sense. Yeah, so, so shit. he had some experience. I'll grant him that. Yeah. But it, he couldn't integrate it. It didn't make him a better person. And his, his inner Nazi triumphed over his uh, inner bodhisattva. You know, he just, that's, he just that's crazy. evil. Like, how do, like, uh, what is the, I mean, I just listened to that. It's like, wow, you have that experience. And that's one of the things is how does an individual integrate that experience into the way of a full expression of the divine, instead of going the total opposite of becoming a, you know, a crazy murderous Nazi, you know, like, what's the deal with that? I mean, or, you know, the example too, is we talk about the guru, you have that experience and it's like, oh, I want to make money now. And I'm going to be as guru. You have this such profound experiences, but is it just based the, the foundational mental foundation that the individual has prior to that or why they're seeking this experience? Does that? I bet, yeah, I, I would say that's definitely part of it. I, I think that um, one of the reasons that you want to have a teacher is not that the teacher can bring you to the experience, but the teacher can maybe help, help you integrate it and say, you know, you were a jerk before you had the experience and look, you're still a jerk. So maybe <laughs> you, should, you should look at that. But there is a tendency to um, jump from, you know, to, to skip the, the, the psychological maturation process. You know, I mean, I started studying Zen when I was 16. I had my first, these, one of these awakening, if you want to call it that, these Kensho experiences when I was 16. And when you're 16, you're, you're not psychologically mature. Oh, God, no. Right? So you could, and, and some people do, they have, you can have an experience when you're not psychologically mature and then say, I'm enlightened now. I don't have to deal with my own dark side, you know, my own shadow work. I don't have to grow psychologically. I can just skip that and just be an enlightened guy. And what that is, it, it, it makes you a psychotic enlightened guy. So yeah. you can, you, the, the, the egoic dis-ease will still impact everything you do. And yeah. that's why you find so many um, priests and pastors and rabbis and swamis and, and Zen masters uh, who have all these problems with their students especially yeah. their men, you know, with their, with their women students, female students. They, they do all these exploitative things uh, because they haven't integrated their spiritual awakening with their psychological maturity. And I'm not saying you have to go in order, you know, like you go from one stage of psychology, psychological maturity to another, and eventually you can go into the spiritual, but you have to work both sides. You know, I mentioned, if you don't mind just taking this one step further. Oh, please. Uh, I mentioned uh, Rabbi Nachman of Braslav in the 1800s and his notion of the Rishimu, the fragrance. He also has this brilliant interpretation of a text that you and I were talking about before, Be'ahavta l'rei echa kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. So in the Hebrew Bible, if you look at a Hebrew text, not a printed book you can buy in bookstore, but the scroll itself, it has no vowels because he, the Hebrew language itself is only made up of consonants. And the vowels are just, um, you, you learn the tradition of, okay, this is an A, not an O, and this is, you just have to know. And you learn it when you're growing up. But what that means is when you look at the actual Hebrew of a Torah text, of a Bible text, it, since it has no vowels, in Judaism, you're allowed to, 
try out different sets of vowels and see if you can get new meaning out of the text. So it, it's not a fixed thing. So here's the example. So he says, take the phrase, ve'ahavta, and you shall love, l'reyecha, your neighbor, kamocha, like yourself. He says, leave ve'ahavta, and you shall love, and kamocha, as yourself, leave those alone, but look at the noun reyecha. So we know, because we've been told for thousands of years to say reyecha is talking about your neighbor. But he says, doesn't have to say that. It could be an a vowel, not an a vowel. So you could say, ve'ahavta, you shall love l'ra'echa, kamocha as yourself. Ra'echa is your evil, your dark side, your shadow. Interesting, wow. And he says, and this is way before Jung, he says what the Bible is saying, because the Bible doesn't have one thing. The Bible says any verse can be read so many different ways. But he says one of the ways the Bible, but one of the things the Bible is trying to impart in this phrase is that you cannot love another if you can't own your own dark side, your own dark shadow. Side. Wow. Because if you try to do that, if you don't own your own shadow, your own dark side, you're just going to project it onto somebody else and exploit them. Yeah. So... Now, is That's that so really true. in the Torah? You know, Nachman says it is, and you can make it be there. And it's, to me, it's a true statement. So I'll give Torah credit for it. But whether the original authors meant that or not is irrelevant to me. The fact that you can find that in the text is what makes- I think I think they do. I think they, they meant that. You know, there are pretty some wise people back. Yeah, they, they weren't stupid. They were yeah. great literary- I mean, these, these books are not are, are, are really works of literary genius in many respects. So, yeah, maybe they did. And they were hoping people would find it, you know. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, as I do more of this work and I have, you know, different guests on, we talk about different subjects and how there's always a hidden meaning behind that. You know, the, the, sometimes you go back into like religious or religious texts and you study it and you understand there's something more to it. And they and they were so wise back then, the people who actually did write them that they're trying to integrate this information in kind of a very subtle way. And hopefully we, we work our way to understanding the, the deeper concepts of that. And one of the things I found was um, I was, I've been studying lately. I've been a big fan of Edgar Casey's work. And I don't know if you ever heard of that gentleman and, yeah. and his works. Well, he did a lot of uh, research with the, what they call the uh, Jesus readings. And he talked about, you know, Christian mysticism and how, you know, the Lord's prayer, was actually, you know, talking about the spiritual centers within the body, or what they call the chakras, and how they integrate, and how each part of the 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 prayer is actually integrated into the chakra system, how it helps balance that. And I just thought that is so. I would never have known that. I think that's so cool. But then I, when I think about it, it does make kind of a lot of sense. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. But I love the idea how you talk about the shadow work, because there's so many what we call so-called gurus, or they or they call called spiritualists or spiritual people, as they like to call themselves, out on the, the, the interweb there. And they're promoting all the stuff, but their shadow work is never a thing. And I always, you know, one of the things I always talk about is, you know, doing your personal work. You got to do that work. You got to integrate that stuff. You got to go in there and you got to get through the, the darkness and examine it and heal that part of yourself. That's where the real work is. And there's so many people I, I see out there that have kind of gone through this spiritual bypass. They've just kind of like... Right. And I think that's really dangerous too, as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that is dangerous. I, I think at least, I mean, I wouldn't say that I have healed my shadow side, but I'm aware of my shadow side. Yeah. And, and at least being aware of it is, keeps you from doing real damage, I think. Because yeah. ultimately, you know that you're, you know, uh, like Fire Sign Theater used to say back in the 60s or 70s, you know, we're all bozos on this bus. So you realize, you know what, we're all, you know, on, on the one hand, you can say, oh, we're all manifestings of God. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. And at the same time, we're all bozos. Because <laughs> yeah. God's a bozo, as well as, you know, the universe. So um, it keeps you, I mean, humility is a, ma is a major um, trait, I think, of someone who's, who's truly spiritual. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've a, learned. It's not about them. 
Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. You know, try to stay humble, and you know, it's funny how the universe will make you humble if you uh, get out of line sometimes. And I've I've I've, uh, I've always kind of appreciate that. It's like you know, I can tell when I'm in my ego, and just little things will humble you, and it's like it'll bring you back to earth and go, okay, Michael. And it's like, oh crap, I gotta, guess I got to work yeah. on that issue. Now, in in twelve step talk, you know, hitting rock bottom. Yeah, is that's the grace of the guru, if you like, you know, to use some other mixing my my spiritual metaphors here. Um, and that's why people in recovery will always say, I'm a recovering ex and not yeah. I'm, I'm recovered. Yeah. Because they're, they know that they're always vulnerable to, to getting tr- caught up in it again. Um, so, yeah, humility yeah. is crucial. Yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the things that is so, so important. So if you had to kind of leave my listeners with some, some little t- tips of wisdom or some knowledge and a little bit of truth bombs just to help them on their journey and stuff like that. Um, is there anything that you would like to kind of tell my listeners? Yes. Let me try this. Yeah. Sort of wrap up what we were saying, Yeah. but do it in a practical way, not a theoretical way. Yeah. Please. So we've been saying that everything is a manifesting of God, right? There is um, a philosopher from the mid 20th century, Emmanuel Levinas, Jewish philosopher who had this, thing called the philosophy of the face or the ethic of the face. And he said, if you truly look into another's face, whether it's a human other or a tree's face or a dog's face or whatever it happens to be, if you truly see the face of another, you're going to feel this inner compulsion to do no harm. And and the reason is, now he just stops there, but Martin Buber, who's a contemporary of his, would say, because when you really see the face of the other, you're seeing the face of God. So the key is to see, to truly see the face of everyone with whom you come into contact. So here's the practice. Uh, I'll give you the Hebrew, but you can do it in English. Whenever you're, I mean, you're just going about your day and you see living beings of course, you could argue that everything is alive, but let's just, we're talking about everything from bugs to, um, you know, humans. Uh, and And you look at that animal or that person, and then you say to yourself, I'll just give you the Hebrew, and then I'll give you the English. Which means I place the divine before me always. So I'm seeing you know, Michael, I'm seeing your face, but I'm saying, you know, I'm placing the divine in front of me. So I'm really seeing God manifesting as Michael. So it doesn't erase Michael at all. Michael is this unique manifesting, but I realize that his truest nature is, is God happening. And by going about your day, remembering by reciting and you do it silently but reciting i place you know the divine before me always whenever i see another being it helps you see their divine self and not just your ego projection and i think that's a very powerful practice i mean i i do my best with it Uh, but it's a very powerful practice uh, that comes i think directly out of what we've been saying today yeah, I, I really love that. And I, one of the things I love about the show is just practical ideas that people can have. And that's why a lot of, I like doing the show is to, you know, have ideas and thoughts and talk about that, but also, you know, some information and inspiration and some ideas that they can actually practical from their day. They can listen to this uh, podcast and they can go, yeah, you know, I'm going to try that. I love what Rabbi Shapiro said there. I'm going to try that and see how that and experiment with the information that you get. And I really appreciate that. So one of the things I want to talk to you before we close off this thing, because I know you have a foundation and I want to make sure that everybody can find your foundation. Uh, where can they find your books and all that sort of thing? So let's talk about your foundation for a second real quick. Yeah, the foundation is called the One River Foundation. The name comes from uh, the song River of Jordan. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary sang it. It's a Peter Yarrow song. And I got permission from Peter Yarrow to use the song oh, title wow. to use the song because I didn't want to get you know sued. Yeah. So he, he was very generous. And and the chorus, and I won't sing it or even give you the whole thing, but yeah. it's there's only one river, there's only one stream, it flows through you, it flows through through me, only one ocean, something like now. Now I've, yeah. I've, I'm misquoting it. But the idea is that everything is part of the same reality. What one river does 
is One River teaches, and this is going to open up a whole other thing, but you can look it up online. Yeah. What One River teaches is what's called perennial wisdom. And this is the, the fourfold mystic truth of every tradition. So real quick, the first, because you've heard these from me already, yeah. the first point of perennial wisdom is that we're all manifestings of this one reality. Point number two is that you and I as humans anyway, other beings maybe, I don't know, but humans have, have <clears throat> an innate capacity to realize your divinity and the divinity of everything else. Number three is when you awaken to, to that infinite divinity, you are internally uh, motivated to live by the golden rule and to what the Bible calls be a blessing to all the families of the earth, human and otherwise. And the fourth point is awakening to the divine in, with, and as everything and treating all beings, uh, you know, according to the golden rule, you know, being a blessing to all beings, those two things comprise the highest goals of being a human being. So that's what the One River Foundation does, does it in a lot of different ways, but that's what it does. As far as my books, you can get any of the 36 of them at a local bookstore. Um, if you, you know, can always order them through a bookstore, if that doesn't work for you, you can you know, get them online through Amazon or something like that. Yeah. And just briefly, what are your websites? So if people want to reach out to you, they want to two, contact you. Yeah. Two websites. There's rabbirami.com and that's my personal website. And then there's the One River website. It's One River, O-N-E, River Foundation, all one word, oneriverfoundation.org. Yeah, and I'll have all that information in the description below. So all you have to do you. is if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple, or you're watching the video on YouTube there, I'll have all that information in the description below. You just got to scroll down a little bit and I'll have all the Rabbi Shapiro's information. If I can, Michael, before you know, I let you go with that, yeah. there's one more way that they can follow me. Um, and that's through my work with Spirituality and Health Magazine. Oh, okay, so perfect. Contributing, contributing editor to Spirituality and Health. I run their podcast, um, which you can, you can get uh, through, the, through the website, spiritualityhealth.com. And if you're not a subscriber, it's a great magazine. You might consider subscribing. That's how yeah, magazines. I think that's survive. a fantastic. I think that's a fantastic idea. And again, I'll have that information. So if you want to go and check out that magazine, check out the podcast, Thanks. check out all the information. It's been absolutely a blessing to have you on the show. I've learned so much, and I just, I just think it was a really, you know, I was something a topic that I wanted to talk to, uh, talk to people about uh, for a long time about Judaism. But it was just more than that. It was just, it was a more of just a very enlightenment conversation, which I was just thoroughly enjoyed. So I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you for that, Michael. I had the same response reaction. It was this was really delightful. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So that being said, everyone, so I'm just going to close off the podcast here. This has been the Metaphysical Mentor Podcast with Michael Philpot. Thank you so much for joining me and goodbye for now.